0: book of Revelation really be understood amidst all the prophetic language and mysterious symbols? How is it relevant to the 21st century? What is the controversy between good and evil all about? How and when will it end? These and many other questions will be answered, providing amazing clarity to the conditions we see in our world today. This seminar will bring you face-to-face with Jesus in a new and wonderful way, leading you to the most momentous decisions of your life. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Revelation. Here is your host, Pastor David Price.
1: Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you to our Revelation Prophecy Seminar for Revelation Seminar Lesson Number 4 which is, of course, the incredibly good news about the book of Revelation. I want to thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have an exciting time tonight, and I know that God is really going to bless us. So let's get into it. Now, discovery points tonight for our Revelation seminar number one, what is the name for God's plan of salvation? Secondly, how do we personally benefit from Jesus' sacrifice? Thirdly, what is a key ingredient in our relationship with God? And number four, what is Jesus' offer of salvation called? So they are our four theme questions tonight that we're going to answer in this seminar. Well, friends, tonight we are really talking about the everlasting gospel. The incredible news that makes the heart to sing and the feet to dance, as, one, as someone once said. And that is the incredible good news that Jesus Christ took the death that was ours, that we might take the eternal life that was his. I hope you won't mind if I just take a moment to share a story with you before we start lesson four. So please relax and sit back. This is a story I remember hearing back in the 70s. It was an incredible story about a jet that was hijacked over Africa and then they made it land. So the hijackers demanded that political prisoners be released and that gold be set aside for them in gold bullion bars and they be able to make their escape. Of course, as the deadline passed, the hijackers got increasingly desperate. They called two-seat numbers in the plane and they then shot a teen and a young mother. These killings sent the authorities into a frenzy. But the authorities and the government were reluctant to give any ground to the hijackers. Finally, the hijackers rang out ran out of patience and announced that another passenger must come down the front. Seat 63C, move down the front now. A middle-aged professional businesswoman glanced up, hoping to see her seat number had changed. But no, it still read 63C above her head. She was about to let out a scream when she heard a commotion behind her seat. And just then a sprightly old English gentleman sailed past her, but then he stopped and he turned around and said as he adjusted his tie, excuse me, madam, would you care to exchange seats with me? Without waiting for her answer, he strode off down to the front of the plane, where she heard some rapid machine gun fire that took his life. Friends, why am I telling you that story tonight? It's quite simple, really. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, for you and for me, he really said, would you care to exchange seats with me? The tragedy today is that so many of us have heard the cross story so many times that we no longer actually understand that we were the ones who were supposed to die and not him. Friends, tonight's lesson is an incredible lesson as we go into our Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We're looking at the incredibly good news of the book of Revelation and I'm going to ask you to join me on the front page of our lesson, page number one. You can either read along with me or enjoy the visual feed on screen. Thank you so much for joining us. The first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis one, two, and three, tell us how sin entered the world. And the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20, 21, and 22, tell us how sin will be eradicated from the earth. Meanwhile, the chapters in between tell us how God actually related to this awful tragedy. As we know, the punishment for sin is death in Romans 6.23. But the ugly malignancy of sin could not be tolerated, else it could endanger the universe. The super tragedy of sin is that when Adam and Eve disobeyed, sin passed to all mankind. And thus all people from that time to the present face the death penalty. So heaven was suddenly confronted with a horrible dilemma. Either sin would have to be excused and tolerated, thus jeopardizing the safety of the universe, or all people would have to die. God flatly refused both options. He could not stand the thought of separation from his earthly children, whom he dearly loved, nor could he permit the ugly sin virus to take over. Instead, an act of unbelievable risk and love, he decided to send his only son, who is God himself, into the world to die in your place and mine. Our sins and our death penalty were placed upon him and we are the ones that were set free. So Revelation 14.6 calls this plan the everlasting gospel. The word gospel means the good news. And indeed, God's blessed, loving plan of salvation is really good news, incredible good news for you and me and for every person on planet Earth. Let's go to the title, Revelation's Crown of Life. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus offers the crown of life to every one of his faithful followers. Happily through Jesus our Saviour, we can all receive this wonderful gift of eternal life. But momentous questions at once spring to mind. What must I do to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice? How can I know he really accepts me? My faith might be weak and how can I strengthen it? What is Revelation's good news for me? For the next few minutes, we'll examine God's answers to these all-important questions. Please keep a prayer in your heart as we grapple with these intensely significant themes. I'm going to ask you now to pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight, again, very humbly, we would ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit that as we open your word, that we might behold wonderful things. Thank you for all the treasures of salvation which are within our reach and grasp tonight. I thank you the Holy Spirit will help us to not only understand the message, but he will give us the power to apply it to our lives, starting as soon as possible. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. We are halfway down page two in Revelation Seminar lesson number four, the incredibly good news of Revelation. Our first heading is Revelation Reveals God's Love And question one. What is God's great plan to save his people called in Revelation 14 and verse 6? John writes, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. Friends, this is God's everlasting good news. The three angels' messages are not to be proclaimed by literal angels, but are messages that God will have his last day people, his last day remnant church proclaimed to the world. And that message is a message of warning that God loves them, that he has a plan for their lives, and he wants to save them and rescue them and take them to heaven. Question two, when did the plan to save man actually go into effect. And we go to Revelation 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13 and verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This is a reference to the beast power, the first beast of Revelation 13 that we're going to speak about in a few lessons time. This evil beast whose name, these people who worship him, their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Friends, this book of life is very, very important and reminds me of an old hymn. I wonder if you've ever heard it. Is my name written there on the page white and fair in the book of God's kingdom? Is my name written there? Friends, the good good news tonight is that your name is written in the book of life from the beginning, but then... If you decide to turn against Jesus Christ and be unfaithful and rebellious repeatedly and commit the unpardonable sin, then our names can be taken out of that book. So what a wonderful promise that is, that our names are written there. When did the plan to save man go into effect? It was, of course, at the foundation of the world. And we studied that very, very extensively, didn't we? about two sessions ago. The note says, all who have ever been saved since the fall of man have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. See Acts 4.12, where it says, there's no other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. There was no different plan for Old Testament believers. In fact, they accepted Jesus' blood in looking forward by faith to the cross. We accept the same blood looking back by faith to the cross. The truth is that no one was ever saved by simply shedding animal blood. What about Hebrews 10 and verse 4? The writer of Hebrews says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So, friends, the sacrifices of the old covenant made at Sinai foreshadowed to the Hebrew believer the coming death of the Redeemer who would make possible the forgiveness of sins. Consequently, he, the sinner, could be forgiven because of his faith in the coming Lamb of God. Thank you for joining me in question three at the top of page three. Well, what happened when Adam sinned and why? We go to Romans chapter five and verse 12, which explains to us very clearly how everything went off the rails very, very quickly in the Garden of Eden. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We're asked what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. The answer is that death passed upon all men because all men have sinned. Some people might be a little bit confused that Adam was given the responsibility for sinning when it was Eve who sinned first. But Paul's very, very clear in the New Testament where he says that Eve was beguiled. He just means that she was tricked or deceived. But when Adam saw that she'd eaten the fruit and she offered it to him, he realized that if he didn't eat the fruit, that he would be without Eve for eternity. And so he quickly grabbed the fruit and ate it. Therefore, sinning, in a knowledgeable state. It's very, very significant, isn't it? So therefore, Adam is the one who brought sin upon mankind. Question four, why is living a life of sin such a serious matter in Romans 6 and verse 23? For the wages of sin is death, the scripture says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So friends, the bad news is there, the wages of sin is death, but the good news is there too, the gift of God is that Jesus Christ wants us to live forever, and so does the Father and the Holy Spirit. Why is living a life of sin such a serious matter? Because the wages or punishment for sin is death. I once remember somebody once saying, the wages of sin might be death, but the hours are good. Friends, I totally reject such nonsense because although the hours of sin may be good, after committing sins, the minutes that come after that mean that guilty hearts are always looking over their shoulders. And that's the nature of sin. It contains guilt and power over us. Question five, what does sin do to our relationship with God in Isaiah 59 and verse 2? Isaiah wrote, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Well, I was wondering if someone was going to ask me the difference between iniquities and sins. What is the difference? Have a look on the screen. Friends, iniquities are guilt worthy of punishment. Also, it means to be premeditated, to continue on in the sin and to escalate the sin. Whereas sins, the actual word means to miss the mark. It also means to do something bad against God or a person. So isn't that interesting, the difference between iniquity and sin? What does sin do to our relationship with God? Whether it's iniquity or sin, it breaks the relationship. It separates us from our God. Not that God wants to be separated from us, but we withdraw our hand from his hand and we slink away like Adam and Eve and hide in the garden because we feel guilty and we feel like we've let ourselves down, we've let our families and friends down, and we've let God down. Friends, there is a picture of the bridge. Jesus Christ made a bridge, something we could never do between earth and heaven. And on the left, there we are in the wilderness of sin, And Jesus Christ stands on the other side, inviting us to walk across the bridge made possible because his death on Calvary. We're in question six, halfway down page three. What did Jesus' death do for his people in Revelation 1, 5? We've looked at this text a number of times, haven't we? It says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. I'm going to pause there and just ask a question. Was Jesus Christ ever the first begotten of the dead? Is Jesus Christ the first one who was resurrected? Resurrected. The answer is no. There were 11 resurrections in the Old Testament and New Testament. Elijah resurrected the widow's son in Zarephath. Elisha resurrected the Shunammite woman's son. Then a man's body who died was thrown into Elisha's grave, and as his body touched Elisha's bones, He bounced back into life. That's an incredible story in 2 Kings 13 and verse 20. Then we have the ministry of Jesus. We have the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Number five, we have Jesus resurrecting the young man and the funeral procession at Nain, and his mother was overjoyed that he was brought back to life. We have the powerful resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus Christ. Um, in Luke chapter 11, sorry, in John chapter 11. And then we have the resurrection of unknown saints during the crucifixion in Matthew 27, 52 and 53. That might be worth looking up if you're unfamiliar with that. We have also Paul resurrecting Tabitha, who is also known as Dorcas. We have Paul resurrecting Eutychus, who fell out of the window when he was long preaching during the night. And then we have Jesus Christ resurrecting Moses. Remember, Moses and Elijah both came back on the Mount of Transfiguration. But friends, what this text really means is that Jesus Christ is the first begotten of the dead. Why is he? He is the most important one. He is the preeminent one because his resurrection guarantees all the other resurrections. But he was not the first one resurrected. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What did Jesus' death do for his people? He washed them from their sins. Friends, we need the filthiness of sin washed off us, don't we? The smell, the stench, the guilt, and the power of sin is washed away by the powerful name of power and authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of kings and Lord of lords, and his amazing blood that makes the demons tremble. So we know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And there's extra information in the lesson guides in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, where it says Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He was the sin offering. He was the one who let the guilty go free if they surrendered to him. Question seven, upon whom have my sins and my death penalty been placed? We go to Isaiah 53 and verse six. This is one of the suffering servant songs. Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, meaning God the Father, hath laid on him, meaning God the Son, Jesus Christ. The Father laid on the Son, the iniquity of us. Or upon whom of my sins and my death penalty being placed? The answer is they're being placed on Jesus. He was the one who volunteered to die for us. Friends, Isaiah 53 is a moving Old Testament prophecy of Jesus' sufferings and death. Question eight. Why was God willing to give his son for us? And why was Jesus willing to die for us? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? I think most of you will know John 3.16. Do you want to say it with me? For God so loved what? The world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever what? Believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And also the one we just read in Revelation 1.5, unto him that loved us, He loved us so much he washed us from our sins and it only came about through the shedding of his own blood. Friends, we are answering the question, why was God willing to give his son for us and why was Jesus willing to die? The answer is that God and Jesus both loved us. And in this illustration, you can see that Jesus even loves teenagers. They can be sometimes a challenge, can't they? Difficult to love. But this is an amazing illustration by Uh, Phil Mackay. Let's go to to, uh, heading number two at the bottom of page three. We're going to look now at Jesus our Saviour and question number nine. What must I do to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice? We've got two texts to look up, Acts 16 and Mark 16. I'm going to actually go back to the beginning of this story. I'm going to go back to get the context. Sometimes I'm sure you're rushing through trying to get your lessons done and maybe you didn't have time. So just kick back and enjoy as we go back and have a look at the Acts 16, 25 to 31 story. It was at midnight that Paul and Silas prayed and they sang praises unto God. Where were they? Yep, they were in jail. And the prisoners heard them. Friends, when you go through trials, are you actually singing praises to God? I want to tell you the devil and his evil cohort of angels, the fallen angels, they hate it when God's people sing praises. If you're really feeling down, I encourage you to put on beautiful Christian music. Hymns are great. Classical music that's appropriate. Friends, I want to tell you that by singing praises to God, you will chase away those dark thoughts and evil times. Verse 26. And suddenly at the prison, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Aha, the prisoners are about to do a jailbreak. Verse 27. And the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, He drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Some of you will know that in ancient times, the jailer was responsible for the prisoners. If they fled, when the Roman soldiers turned up, they would automatically kill him. 28, but the apostle Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Notice Paul wasn't rushing off. He wasn't saying, oh, this is my chance to get out of here. He was honouring God. He was waiting till God busted him out. 29. Then the jailer called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, this is one of the greatest questions in all of Scripture, friends. It's about our lesson tonight. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a question we're asking tonight. And in Acts 16, 31, what was their answer? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Friends, because of their steadfast faith, their trust in God and not trying to save their own lives, a man and his family came to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to our second text in Mark 16, 16. Jesus said very clearly, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not, shall be damned friends you can see there the most important thing is to have belief belief on the Lord Jesus Christ question 10 how may I receive forgiveness and cleansing in first John 1 9 this is an amazing text I love it if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some of our sins or some of our unrighteousness is that what the scripture says? It does not. It very clearly says that Jesus has the power to cleanse us from all of our sins and all of unrighteousness. Friends, some people think adultery or sexual sin is the unpardonable sin. It's not. The unpardonable sin must be the only sin that Jesus can't forgive. The only sin that he can't forgive under his blood on the cross would be the sin that is not confessed and forgiven. So, friends, the great news tonight is if you are faithful in confessing your sins, he is faithful to forgive you and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So it's very, very important not just to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the book of James says that the devils believe and tremble, don't they? But it's very important to not only believe in Jesus, but to confess our sins and ask God to help us forsake them. Friends, today, many Christians don't think they sin because they haven't killed anyone lately. I've heard that people say that to me. Friends, I want to ask you to go through Exodus 20. Have a look at the Ten Commandments and just examine yourself, as the scripture says, and see if you've been in the faith. Also go through 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. These are lists of sins and also Galatians 5, 19 to 21. I want you to jot those down. So obviously, Exodus 20, go through the Ten Commandments. See where you are falling and failing. This is what I do. I also go through 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, and Galatians 5, 19 to 21. I did look up some list of sins today. You can do that on the internet. Um, One list was 87 sins, but the one that really got my attention was a very comprehensive list of all the sins listed in the Bible. And I can remember the amount. It was 667 sins. Friends, sin is very... Serious, isn't it? Because sin costs life. The note said confession also includes turning away from sin because sin costs life. The life of the sinner or the life of the saviour or in some cases, both lives. I want to take you to this text in the note. You know, you see all these rocks piled up here, and it reminds me of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 28, 13. The wise man wrote, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. You can't prosper with God if you cover up your sins. But whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Isn't that absolutely brilliant? Isn't that absolutely amazing? We're at the bottom of page three. What does the Bible say must accompany Repentance. We're going to Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Come over the page. Before we do, and before you write your answer at the bottom of that page, I've got a question for you. What is the definition of true repentance? My definition is this, being sorry enough to quit. What does that actually mean? Friends, I think in the illustration it means that we actually have to get away from the source of the temptation and make concrete plans to overcome the sin. And that shows that we are fair dinkum with God. We are really serious because we're sorry enough to lay down plans and claim scriptures and make strategies whereby we ask God to help us overcome and forsake that sin. We're going to Acts 3 and verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, there's our answer, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Friends, I believe those are the words of Peter. What does the Bible say must accompany repentance? The answer is our conversion. In the original language here, repent means to have a change of mind. To convert means to turn around. Repentance actually means a genuine change of mind and attitude towards God, toward oneself and toward others. Under the Holy Spirit, the repentant person begins to see things as God sees them. Conversion actually means a U-turn on the highway of life. I thought I'd just stop and pause a moment to give you an illustration of conversion. Friends, this is a Jetstar Airbus jetliner, which was sold to the government recently in the last few years, and then it underwent a conversion to become this plane. This converted plane had new paint, it had a new pilot, it had new crew, it went on new missions, it had new cargo, and it had a new destination. So what was the new role for this plane? It was the RAAF's plane for transporting the Prime Minister of Australia and his ministers around Australia and around the world. So that Jetstar jet certainly had a conversion. Is there enough evidence in my life and is there enough evidence in your life to show that we actually are converted? Is there enough evidence to arrest us for actually being Christians? I hope that'll give you something to think about. We're at the top of page four. Would you join me in question number 12? What is this conversion experience called in scripture and why? We go to John chapter three in a remarkable encounter here between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the high-ranking Jews. And uh, he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. And he wanted to ask Jesus some questions. But Jesus was such a controversial character that Nicodemus came to see him when? During the day when everyone could see him no, he came at night. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we do know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, notice that in this interview, Nicodemus starts off with flattery and praise. But Jesus cut straight to the chase. Jesus answers and said unto him in John 3, verse 3, Verily, verily, or of a truth, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ goes straight to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus saith then unto Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? and be born? Jesus answered, once again, truly, truly, or of a truth, I swear to you, I say unto thee, except a man be what? Born of water, that's baptism, and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Finally, Jesus says to Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be what? Born again. Jesus is saying that to me tonight, and he's also saying it to you. What is this conversion experience called in scripture and why? It's called the new birth or being born again. Why is it called that? Because when we're born again, we have no past. At conversion, a person is cleansed from sin and starts all over as a newborn baby in a changed relationship with God. Who comes into my life at conversion? We go to Revelation 3 and Ephesians chapter 3. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Friends, Jesus stands not so much at our front door, but at the door of our hearts knocking to come in. But is anybody listening anymore? The television's blaring. People are on their phones. People are downloading video programs. People are doing this and that. But is anyone listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit who brings the voice of the Saviour to us? And friends, why don't people open the door? because there's so much junk piled up against the door and no one's paying attention that often Jesus has to move on. In Ephesians three seventeen to 19, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, that we're going to study next week, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, there is simply who comes into our life at conversion. The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and implants within us the attitudes of repentance and faith, and we accept Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord, then Jesus will come fully into our lives, Revelation 3.20. Secondly, God freely forgives our sins, 1 John 1 9. Then thirdly, God accounts to us the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Finally, God accepts and treats us as his children, First John 3, 1 to 3, we just read about Jesus and Nicodemus, that we must be born again. Question number 14, through what agency does Jesus abide in my life? In John 14 and verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. Friends, notice this is the third person of the Godhead. This is the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, who lives within us. Aren't you glad that's not some pagan force trying to live in you and control you? But this is the beautiful third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Through what agency does Jesus abide in my life? The answer is through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take a moment to delve into the Holy Spirit. We spoke about the Trinity or the Godhead the other night. What can we understand about the precious and beautiful Holy Spirit? In fact, who is the Holy Spirit? Today, the Holy Spirit is greatly misunderstood because people have taken the motifs and symbols for the Holy Spirit as actually being the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, or he is the one who pleaseth me well. And so, friends, it then said the Holy Spirit alighted on him like a dove. But, friends, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit was like a dove. Then you remember we just read in the John chapter 3 of Nicodemus and Jesus about the wind blows wherever it will, speaking about the power of the Holy Spirit. But that is a motif for The power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a wind. Number three, some of you will know the Holy Spirit is likened to tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But friends, the Holy Spirit is like tongues of fire and is like a fire, but he is not a fire. So who is this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God? I think we explained a little bit about that in previous sessions. But tonight, I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit is a person. And Romans 8, 26 and 27 tells us that he has the mind of God and he does the will of God. So friends, I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit is the fascinating third person of the Godhead. And he is no one to be afraid of. He is someone who brings Jesus to us. If you're not sure about the Holy Spirit, I ask you now to read John chapter 14, John chapter 15, and the gospel of John chapter 16. Those chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, tell us heaps about the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Comforter. Question 15, when Jesus abides or lives in my life through his Holy Spirit, what two marvellous things does he do for me? We go to Philippians chapter 2 and Ezekiel 36. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, friends, that sounds like very old English, both to will and to do. What does that mean? Well, firstly, to will means to give us motivation and desire, a willing heart to want to do the right thing. Half of the problem that Christians have, and I experienced this myself, is a lack of desire and motivation to do the godly thing, to do the right thing, to desire that special relationship with God. So God will supply the desire and the motivation he often has to. If you don't have that, then open your heart to him and tell him that you want that closer walk. What does it mean to do of his good pleasure? The word do means that there will be Holy Spirit power available to help you do God's will, leading you to action and good deeds. Friends, I want to tell you that God wants to walk in our our hearts by both giving us action and giving us the motivation to follow his will. We now go back into the Old Testament to a time of idolatry in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. God said, then I'll sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And this is the book that I'm reading through in my worship time every morning for an hour. We go in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. God says through Ezekiel, a new heart also will I give to you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Friends, what's the heart of flesh? It just refers to a willing heart. And what's the spirit within you? That refers to the Holy Spirit. It gives you power to obey him. Friends, I want you to think tonight in terms of obedience to God. Do you have a stony heart? Or is God building inside of you a heart of flesh, a heart that wants to obey? If you don't really want to obey, then you can always say to God, Lord, make me willing to be willing. That's not a hard prayer to remember, is it? Ask God to make me willing to be willing. And you know what? He does. He absolutely does. When Jesus abides in my life through his Holy Spirit, what two marvelous things does he do for me? He allows us to receive the desire to will and to then do and act out righteous deeds as we are filled with the beautiful character and robe of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gives me, number one, a willing heart, and then adds the power to do his will. We're going to heading heading number three at the bottom of page four, Jesus our Lord. Question 16, why should I be confident, relieved, and excited once I've experienced the new birth? I'm going to go to Jude 24 first because our answer is found in Philippians 1 and verse 6, but I love Jude 24. and 25. Jude just has one chapter, so it's not chapter 1, verse 24, 25. It's just Jude verses 24, 25. It just has one chapter, as you know. Now unto him, who would that be? The Lord Jesus Christ, that is able to what? To keep you from falling. Isn't that interesting? It's very, very simple that there is power available to overcome sin. Now unto Jesus Christ, who's able to keep you from falling and to present you what? What? Faultless before the presence of his glory with what? Exceeding joy. Verse 25. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, soon I'm going to talk to you about the four parts of prayer. Once you remember here that Jude 25, that whole verse is adoring him. That is to adore him. That is adoration to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Do you ever use adoration in your prayers? We go to Philippians 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, there's the promise. Very powerfully, there is a promise to do with the past that God has begun a good work in us in the past. He will perform it now in the, presence, in the present time until the day of Jesus Christ, which is future. So God works in us in past, present, and future. So we are never alone. The note at the top of page five says, Jesus works within me and for me to make me righteous. I can be confident because my salvation rests upon his ability to perform and not mine. Now, I want to read something here out to you. The question is, did you know that the daily process of our sanctification, which is our fitness for heaven, justification is our title for heaven, but sanctification is our fitness for heaven. Justification is where God sees us just as if we'd never sinned. Sanctification is where the Holy Spirit living in our hearts helps us overcome sin and helps us to become holy and great witnesses for the kingdom of heaven and not disgraces or embarrassment to the kingdom of heaven. Did you know the daily process of our sanctification or our fitness for heaven is the result of lifelong obedience? Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule. I can think of one. Uh, How about the thief on the cross? Didn't have a lot of time to do the lifelong obedience. But friends, I want to tell you, that as you and I walk the path with Jesus, he will be there and help us every step of the way. We're at the top of page five of question 17. What is the big problem that faces most Christians? We go to Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So there's many people saying, Lord, the Lord, this, and Lord, Lord, that. But he narrowed it down. But the ones who do enter are those that, doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus is saying that it is the obedient ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. What is the big problem that faces most Christians today? They're eager to call him Lord, Lord, but refuse to obey him, especially when it cuts across the things that we want to do that don't agree with God's word or the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus must be crowned both Saviour and Lord of our life. Just before I go on to the note, I want to go back and tell you there's a text here that I wanted to add in that you don't have in your lesson guide. Do you want to add it? How important is it to obey him and how do we obey him? I'd like you to write in there Acts chapter 5 and verse 32. Acts 5 and verse 32. And we, Peter said, are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, same thing, whom God hath given to them that what? Obey him. Friends, the Holy Spirit resides in the hearts of those that obey him. I want you to take time to look up that passage yourself. Have a look in Acts chapter 5 and study for yourself verse 32. The Holy Spirit is not given to the disobedient. It is given to those who obey him. What a beautiful promise that is. Jesus must be crowned both saviour and lord of my life. Most find it easier to crown him saviour, everyone would like to be saved, wouldn't they, than to crown him lord, meaning the boss of us. To crown him lord means I will let him run my life, call all signals for him. I will follow where he leads rather than demand my own way. Many of us do not want anyone else running our lives, including Jesus. We rebel against it. This is the root of sin, and this is exactly what Jesus Christ died for. Question 18, how difficult is it sometimes for me to let the Lord lead me where he knows I should go? We go to Matthew 5 and verse 29 and 30. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Jesus said, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And cast it from thee for it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So friends, if your eyes are leading you to sin, then Jesus is using a parable here to get rid of whatever's causing you to fall down, to fall into sin, to get rid of that, that temptation, to get rid of that weakness. Verse 30, and if thy right hand offend thee, he goes dramatically further cut it off and cast it from thee for it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. You know, friends, there's a general easiness in the church today with sin that everyone's going to be saved and everyone's going to heaven, especially at funerals. But I want to tell you today that the Bible is very specific about, and Jesus says here, that not everyone's going to heaven, that those who persist in sin, And rebellion will be cast into hell. How difficult is it sometimes for me to let the Lord lead me where he knows I should go? It's as hard as plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand. Pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Question 19 at the bottom of page 5. Why is it absolutely imperative for me to crown Jesus Lord and allow him to abide within me and call signals for my life? We have three passages to look up here. Big lesson tonight. I think there's over 80 texts. We are in Genesis one and verse twenty six, Genesis one twenty six. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. Friends, do you notice there in the scripture, it doesn't say we are created in the image of chimpanzees, in the image of gorillas or in the image of monkeys. In fact, it's quite blasphemous, isn't it, to believe that. It says in God's word, so God created man in his own image. We actually look like him. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he then the world has gone a long way away from that verse, hasn't it? In 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit into unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. How do we get born again? Verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, by the what? The word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And that truth from God's word comes to us through the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, 8 to 10. But now ye also put off all these sins. What are they? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Language in society today is pretty bad, isn't it? Verse 9. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Why is it absolutely imperative for me to crown Jesus Lord, the boss of our lives, and allow him to abide within me and call the signals for my life via the power of the Holy Spirit? It's so Jesus can restore us into his image. This is the whole work of salvation, to restore in man the image of God. This is the whole work of education from God's word. The note says, in the beginning, man was created in God's image. Here we have Jacob wrestling the being in Genesis 1. In Genesis, sin has virtually destroyed God's image in man, but it is the gospel plan to restore it within us. At conversion, the Old life dies and a new life which comes from the new birth begins. But as with natural birth, to be born again is not enough. We must grow. Ephesians 4.15. Growth in the Christian life is what restores man to the image of God in which he was created in the beginning. If I permit Jesus to abide within me and miraculously run for my life and miraculously run my life, he will restore God's image within and will fit me a place fit me for a place in His kingdom. See Colossians one and verse twenty-seven. Would you join me at the top of page six and question number twenty? Our new heading, heading number four, is that Jesus receives us. Isn't that a precious truth? Question twenty: How can we know that Jesus has accepted us when we ask? First John one nine and Titus one two. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and Titus 1 2 in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie or God who cannot lie promised before the world began how can we know that Jesus has accepted us when we ask because he promised it and he cannot lie God will not lie to us because he is the Revelation 1 5, true and faithful witness. Thank you. We are saved by God's grace through what? Faith. We're saved by God's grace through faith. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. Jesus promised salvation and acceptance. He cannot lie, so when I ask for salvation to give myself to him, I receive it that very moment because he promised it. Faith means I accept it and claim it at once because he promised it and not because I feel or see anything different friends have you ever often wondered what grace means two men were in a bull's paddock and they were running from the bull and as they both sailed over the fence one bloke said to the other quick say say a prayer and the guy wasn't religious and he said for what we're about to receive may the lord make us truly thankful Apparently, that's the only prayer he knew, which he'd learned by having grace at the family table. But friends, is grace just something you say before you eat food? What does grace mean? Let me share with you a beautiful acrostic that's helped me remember what God's grace is all about. Well, grace stands for G, stands for God's. The R stands for riches. The A stands for at. The C stands for Christ's. And the E stands for expense. Today, people think Jesus' death on the cross didn't cost heaven anything. They have no idea. If you've had children that are sick or if you've lost children to death, you'll know there's nothing more painful. And God went through that same pain when he lost his only begotten son. So God's riches were poured out upon us. His grace, his mercy and his love and his eternal life. But it came at Christ's expense. The beatings, the terrible death, being stripped naked on the cross, all the things he went through. Friends, grace just means the undeserved merit or favor that God pours out on us for no good reason except he loves us. Question 21, how may I strengthen my faith? This is really, really important. How can we get more faith? Romans 10, 7, 8. So then, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, faith cometh by what? Hearing. And hearing cometh by the word of God. How do we get more faith, friends? Where does it come from? It comes from where? The word of God. In Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Every word that proceedeth from or out of the mouth of God. And then in Psalm 119, 11, thy word, O God, I have hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Friends, here is the secret of success in overcoming sin, that if you memorize God's scripture and you quote them, when Satan tempts you, you will have power to overcome. Let all the people say, (laughs) amen. What a glorious truth that is. How may I strengthen my faith? By studying the word of God and let me tell you tonight by memorizing it. All have some faith according to Romans 12.3. We strengthen our faith by studying God's word. This of course is one great key purpose of the Revelation seminar. Question 22 at the bottom of page six. How will true conversion change my life? And there are a whole stack of sections here. There are A, B, C, D, E, F. There are six sections. As I said... We are really giving you a Bible study workout tonight over 80 texts. How will true conversion change my life? I'll begin to something everybody. John 13 verse 35 by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have what? love one to another. There's the answer. but first John 3:14 says we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. he that loveth not his brother, abideth in death friends this is a strong challenge isn't it that we have to love everyone and if you're struggling with loving people who don't love you or are difficult characters or are irregular persons then ask jesus for the love and the forgiveness of jesus to be shed abroad in your heart and he will give you the ability to love the unlovable in matthew 5:44 but i say unto you love your enemies Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Friends, I think the message is coming through loud and clear. How will true conversion change my life? When we're converted, we really will show. There'll be enough evidence to charge us as Christians. We will actually love everybody and with the love of God, which is unconditional. 22b, we're going to look at how our lifestyle will change and what we're willing to do for God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man, meaning mankind, humankind, man, woman, and child, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. There's our answer. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 1 John 3, 22, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So how will true conversion change my life? My lifestyle will be new or different. Some people write in there, it'll change. I'll be willing to keep his commandments and I will want to please him. Friends, obedience is the fruit of justification and righteousness. Obedience is the fruit of a connected and righteous life. Let's go to section D. I'll begin to know what God's something is for me. We're in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I plead with you, says Paul, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So friends, how will true conversion change my life? The answer is I'll begin to know what God's will is for me. Let's go to part E at the top of page 7. I want to tell others something. What will we want to tell them? In Acts four nineteen and twenty, but Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In Acts one verse eight, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, friends, here we have the story of the demoniac in Mark five nineteen. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, to the demoniac, or I should say, the ex demoniac who was delivered of all those demons they called legion, for they were many. Jesus said to him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And friends, the demoniac did go, or the ex demoniac did go. And share the message. And next time Jesus came back, then the people were receptive to the message. How will true conversion change my life? I will want to tell others what great things the Lord hath done for me. Friends, witnessing is a part of the converted lifestyle. In part F, the sixth part, I will want to spend time talking to God. How can we talk to God in Acts 4.31? And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Another one, Luke eleven thirteen. if ye then, being evil, Jesus said, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give um, the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Friends, supplication is a word we don't hear much today. The dictionary definition is that supplication comes from the Latin verb supplicare, which means to merely plead humbly with God. Friends, In terms of prayer, did you know there are four parts of prayer and acts, A-C-T-S is the way that I remember how to pray a structured and logical prayer. We should start with adoration. We should follow with confession. We should then go into thanksgiving and we should then leave supplication, which are requests to the very last. Friends, it's so sad that many of us begin our prayer life with asking God as though he's some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. To roll out the gifts and presents from his big sack in the sky. Friends, if I rang you up and didn't even say hi and how you're going, just said rang you up and gave you a list of orders, I'm sure you won't wouldn't be very impressed. So friends, do we go into adoration? Do we ever say how amazing and how wonderful God is? Do we adore him in prayer? I remember once... I'm going to a minister's fraternal meeting and hearing a pastor from another faith spend about a minute or two minutes in adoration. And I was amazed. I was a young minister at the time and I'd I'd never heard adoration like that before. And it really had a big impact on me. Friends, are we really confessing our sins? Are we just hopping into bed at night saying, dear Lord, thanks for the day and I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Friends, we cannot go to sleep with sins on our heart. Nobody knows if we have tomorrow or not. Is this our last moments alive on planet Earth? No one knows. We have today, but we don't know if we have tomorrow. So I'm asking you to try adoration. Maybe you don't know what adoration is. Well, write down Psalm 96 and Psalm 100. They're beautiful prayers of adoration to God. They also contain some thanksgiving. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving. I think we're better at thanksgiving. But also supplication is pleading humbly and putting our request before God. But let's not start by asking him. Let's start by celebrating him. How will true conversion change my life? I want to spend prayer time talking to God. Sorry, I will want to spend time talking to God in prayer. There is our answer. The big difference is that after conversion, I really want the Lord to have his way with my life. I want his spirit to guide me. See Acts 8. 9, and 14. Question 23, what is Jesus' provision to save sinners called? Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, I think sometimes we light the fuse of sins and then we run away hoping that the wind might blow it out before the bomb goes off. There's always consequences with sin. Sometimes we sow our wild oats and then we pray for a crop failure. But I want to tell you that the Bible says that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Paul gave us that rule of sowing and reaping. So friends, what is Jesus' provision to save sinners called? It is called a gift, the best eternal gift in the world. The Bible is clear that most people will be lost. Hmm. There's a surprising thought for a lot of Christians. Since Jesus' loving provision for sinners is a free gift, why will so many be lost in Isaiah 1, 19 and 20? If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Friends, Since Jesus' loving provision for sinners is a free gift, why will so many be lost? It says, if you be willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured with the sword. Is that any different to the way that we speak to our loved ones or our children? If you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. We outline the consequences and we need to be very, very clear. Friends, the gift is free, but I must be willing to receive it or Jesus cannot help me. Our final title tonight is Revelation's Good News. We're halfway down page seven. What five grand and glorious truths does Revelation tell us about the incredibly good news of Jesus Christ's plan to save his people? We go to Revelation 1 and verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen means let it be. It's a truth. And have the keys of hell and death. Jesus Resurrection was so powerful, for then he declared that he had power over hell and death. The good news is today that Jesus is alive forevermore, and he has the amazing keys to unlock hell, which often means the grave, but also means the lake of fire, and also the death that separates us from loved ones, friends, and family. Friends, the good news tonight is Jesus is a living saviour. We do not worship a dead guy like many faiths today. Jesus is a living saviour who has power over death and hell. Question 25, part two, what five grand and glorious truths does Revelation tell us about the incredibly good news of Jesus Christ's plan to save his people? In Revelation 5, 9, and they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God Buy thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's our answers. What five grand and glorious truths does Revelation tell us about God's plan to save his people, that Jesus Christ was slain and he redeemed us? Remember I told you in our last session about the little boy who made the boat? Then he bought the boat back from the pawn shop. And so redeem means to buy back from sin. The good news, Jesus' sacrifice was for you and me personally. What five grand and glorious truths tell us about Jesus' plan? We go to Revelation 7:14 and 19. Eight. And I said unto the angel, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of the great tribulation or the great time of trouble and have washed their robes and made them white where? In the blood of of the lamb. They were made white in the blood of the lamb. Revelation nineteen eight, And to her, who is the subject of this verse, I've put there in abbreviation, her is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You can find that in the previous verse, 7. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. This is the bride of Jesus, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteous, meaning the righteousness, meaning the deeds of the saints. How does this work, friends? The white robes of the saints is Jesus' robe of righteousness that he places over us. And the righteous deeds are the result of having his righteous character. So, friends, he gives us right white raiment. He gives us those beautiful clothes. Jesus' righteousness, the white raiment, is a gift. I do not earn it. Jesus, by a great miracle, provides it free. Part four, Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of the heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Friends, the gospel will go out to every nation, every type of different people, every tongue, every language group, and every people group jesus will not overlook one single person anywhere every one of us is extremely important to him part five we'll go to revelation 21 and revelation 22 and he said unto me it is done i am alpha and omega the beginning and the end i will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely revelation 22:17 and the spirit and the bride say come and let him that heareth say come and let him that is athirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely Jesus Christ's amazing plan to save his people he gives us the water of the, the fountain of the water of life and he gives it to us freely friends what a beautiful promise that is the good news? Jesus' part in salvation is to furnish the power, the miracles, the forgiveness and grace. My part is to truly desire or thirst for him to save me. Friends, where does that power come from? What is the source? What is the earthly source of this power to break me off from my sins? I'm wondering what your answer is. Here is your answer. Friends, it is the amazing word of God that is so powerful and yet many bibles just remain on the shelf from week to week in the homes of christian i've challenged you tonight is there enough evidence to arrest you for being a christian today or are you so gray that you've just blended in with the rest of society friends if you are a follower of jesus it's time to stand out question 26 says it is unthinkable that any of us present at this revelation seminar would fail to accept Jesus' miraculous free offer to forgive and cleanse us and restore us to his image. Jesus is anxious to work miracles for all of us. Will you just now decide to accept his plan to save you or reaffirm that great decision? I've said I want Jesus Christ to be the boss of me, to be my Lord and my saviour, and I choose him again right now. Friends, our four theme questions that we began with, what is, the God's, uh, what is the name for God's plan of salvation? It's very simply known as the Everlasting Gospel. What a beautiful name. Number two, how do we personally benefit from Jesus' sacrifice? We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and act on it. Number three, what's a key ingredient in our relationship with God? We need to be obedient. And number four, what is Jesus' offer of salvation called? It's called a free gift. This is just a reminder that tonight's lesson will be posted um, on YouTube, on the, ch- on the channel True Blue SDA, and that's where you can encounter these Revelation Seminars and the previous series done uh, 12 months ago, which were the Daniel Prophecy Seminar. So we did the Daniel Prophecy Seminar last time, and this time we're doing the Revelation Prophecy Seminar. Well, it's great so many of you are doing the quiz. I look forward to your answers tonight. Before we do, let's do the response questions. Is it clear that salvation is a totally free gift from God? If so, put a tick in box, number one. Number two, if you've already accepted Jesus as your saviour, I'm going to ask you to put a tick in box, number two. And number three, if you'd like to accept Jesus now as your personal saviour from sin and receive his gift of eternal life, please place a tick in box, number two. All right, let's go into our quiz tonight. By the way, you fill in the missing blank tonight, so you've got five One-word answers to come up with. Number one, the Bible says the wages of sin is blank. And the word starts with D. Would you write that into the box of question number one? The wages of sin, the Bible says, is what? Starts with D. Write that in now and lock it in. Number two, true faith in God produces loving something. One-word answer starts with O true faith produces loving something beginning with o lock your answer in for question two number three or oh, this isn't a hard one god so loved the what the something that he gave his only begotten son and that word begins with w number four eternal life is a something from god beginning with g Eternal life is a something from God beginning with G. Number five, we are saved by the something of Christ that begins with B. We are saved by the something of Christ. All right, I'm going to ask you to lock in your answers beginning with D, O, W, G, and B. Let's go through the answers now. The wages of sin is death. Absolutely correct. Number two, true faith, priests, priests produces loving obedience. Number three, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Number four, eternal life is a gift. And number five, we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, let's have a look at our wall of truth. We started with Revelation, the open book, and we found out the Bible does and can interpret itself. We found out Jesus is the star of Revelation. He was a God of time, and he's a God who's going to come back on time. We found out Satan is the villain of Revelation, but God didn't make a devil. But by Lucifer sinning, he turned himself into Satan, the devil. Tonight, we learned out more about the gospel and how to be saved. Friends, next week, don't miss it. Next session, number five, we're going to study together the seven ignored messages of Jesus. This is absolutely incredible. We are going to study. The seven churches, we're beginning the study of the sevens. This is the first of the sevens. This is the seven churches. Later on and soon, we'll study the seven seals. Then we will study the seven trumpets. Then we will study the seven last plagues. Friends, I believe many of us will be alive soon when the seven last plagues are poured out. What are we going to learn in lesson five next time? In session five, what is God? Why does God value obedience and overcoming? What does gold tried in the fire mean? What does the white raiment mean? What is spiritual eye self? And which one of the seven churches makes Jesus Christ sick and why? Don't meet, don't miss next time because I've actually been to these seven churches um, and I've toured through the area. I've taken my own photos and It's a fascinating journey together. I'm also asking you to spend some time reading Revelation chapter 2 and 3. I'm going to ask you to read Revelation 2 and 3 in a modern version before you start doing your study. That will help prepare you to understand the messages before you dig down deep into the study. Would you pray with me as we close? Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, I thank you tonight for this amazing Bible study on how to be saved thank you for all these tips and pointers that show us how to have a powerful and strong connection with jesus christ every day bless every person who hears this message that you'll give them the power to understand and to apply these beautiful messages to their life that jesus may become number one for we ask it in his powerful name amen Well, I want to thank you tonight for being with us for the incredibly good news of the book of Revelation. And uh, I'd like to say um, very much to you. Thank you so much for being here. Look forward to session number five. Thank you. God bless you. And good night.
0: You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar. The Book of Revelation with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, or one word, that's True Blue SDA.
1: This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.